Okay. Um, as always, let me just remind you that you can uh, just you can type in a question. All your microphones are muted for right now. You can type in a question in the chat box, and um, and if you have one along the way and you don't want to interrupt, if you do want to just uh, ask a question, you can feel free to do that as well. Um, if you want to open up your mic, that that's fine, and I will stop at the end of all of this and ask for questions. So. Um, if you don't get a chance to ask it right now, don't worry. It will, we'll come around, we'll come back around to it. I promise. Okay. So I want to just take a moment to review some of the things that we, we talked about last week because it'll help to kind of situate us where we, where we are in the lesson, uh, or in the, the, in the course of the old Testament, we are, we, we, we're in the middle of first Kings and we're right in the middle of Solomon building the temple. And so a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, we, we read the passages where Solomon builds a temple there in First uh, Kings, really five, all the way through about chapter nine. We read at least the bulk of that and talked about the ins and outs of how he came to build the temple and uh, what, what the process was like and, and those sorts of things. And you notice that as, as the Bible lays it out, there's, a, there's lots of descriptions about the kinds of things that were inside the temple and that, that, that really did matter and that are, that are very important as we will see tonight. But what we talked about last week, we've taken just a bit of a pause on going through the text line by line and really step back to kind of analyze what is this structure, the temple, and why is it so important? And really what my hope was, has been, is to, is to uh, more than anything, help us sense the feeling that would have come with the temple being built. And so some of this that we're, we're doing is, is a little bit more difficult and, and probably something that we're not as used to going through biblical theology and wrapping our minds around some of these bigger, maybe more difficult and more abstract concepts. But basically last week we looked at the temple being a kind of a, a, a structure that sort of mirrored in some way the cosmos, all of creation. And we, I said last week that God, that originally God's realm and man's realm, we might say heaven and earth, um, coexisted in harmony together. But we know that it was the fall of Adam, his disobedience, that ultimately separated those two. And they no longer could really coexist in, in the way that they had. And so heaven and earth were more or less driven apart. Man was separated. If you think of even the, the uh, tracks that we hand out of man being separated from God, you know, that, that's kind of the same idea. And um, the first reunion, really, where heaven and earth come back together in some sort of way, where they even uh, touch maybe a little bit, is in the temple or the tabernacle. And so um, that first instance where heaven and earth, you know, kind of come back together or, or merge in some way 
is seen in the temple or the tabernacle. We know that God's presence really did dwell there. And he, he, we even looked at passages last time where uh, in Exodus, where he tells Moses and the people that the reason that the tabernacle is coming about and the reason that he's building the tabernacle is so that he can walk amongst his people, that he can dwell with them, that he can meet with them on a regular basis. It was referred to as the tent of meeting. I mean, there's all kinds of these things where it's obvious that God is moving into our, our world and giving us the privilege of having some capacity where we might be able to meet with him because uh, he, he knows that that is for our good and for his glory. And so he does that in the tabernacle and, and ultimately does that in the temple. And, um, and so it's, it's where uh, man, for our own sake, are able to meet with God. And so it's, it's as if this heaven and earth are coming back to just touch in some very small capacity. Now, we also saw that the temple is the, the way it's set up has really three main parts and each part of the temple setup has a corresponding part in creation. So the outer court around the outside of the temple would represent uh, the habitable world where humanity dwelt. So I'm going to, I'm going to, show you, you've got this, this review on your handout. I'm going to give you this image that you can look at while we're going through this review. But this outside world where, where this outside portico, this outside, uh, yeah, area here where the one is, is really kind of meant to emulate some of the habit habitable world where you've got the cauldrons of water over here that are literally called the sea the altar, which is built on the bosom of the earth, which is meant to be kind of like uh, in some, I've heard it also called the navel of the earth, like the, the, it's like the center of the earth, you know, it's, it's the heart of the earth um, that this, uh, the, the um, altar is built on here on the outside, just to the right of that one, or I guess above that one. And so it's sort of designed to emulate the habitable world and all the nations could gather there, particularly all the nations represented by the nation of Israel. They would gather, every one of them could gather there on the outside. They, they were all welcomed up there with their sacrifice. But then you've got the next stage of this in where the two is being the holy place where there's a lot of celestial images in there of star lights, the seven lights in the sky, the seven predominant lights in the sky, uh, sun, moon, and five planets, which are the brightest uh, glowing orbs in our sky. And, um, and so they, um, uh, and that's the five closest planets, by the way, Mercury, let's see if I can do this, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Um, are the five brightest uh, glowing orbs, I guess you would say, in our, in, our, um, in our sky, along with the sun and moon. And so you've got this menorah that's got seven of these lights kind of on them. And there's angelic representation that's tied into that. A lot of things we talked about last week that are really hard for us to wrap our minds around. But, um, but the priests were the only ones that were allowed in this holy place. And then you have in part three there of the temple, the Holy of Holies, which is the, like the throne room of God. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant is seen as his footstool. 
And so he places his feet, as it were, on the Ark of the Covenant, and it's surrounded by cherubim and all of this. And only the high priest is allowed in there, and only while the incense is burning so that he can't really even see the glory of God, but he's sort of getting close and he's, he's meeting with his feet, even though he can't look at it, lest he as a sinful man still would die. So it's, it's essentially like this, uh, this priest, if you will, this high priest who represents the nation of Israel is walking from heaven through the stars and into the throne room of God as he approaches as he approaches God. So once again, heaven and earth meet, but they're not overlapping. They're not uh, they're not occupying the same space as they as they as they uh, as we, we would have seen in like the Garden of Eden or something like that. But but they they are are, are touching one another again, where man still has access in some way um, to the throne of God, and so. We, last week, what I wanted you to see and what I wanted you to understand and really kind of take away if you could is that the temple has a, a, a meaning to a Jew of essentially being a, a I think uh, David Maxwell was the one that put it this way last week, a, a portal uh, a, 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 of giving access to heaven, specifically to the throne room of God. And it's where God would yet again meet with his people. And so when a Jew is watching this temple come about or, or worshiping at this temple for hundreds of years, the feeling, the weight of what he or she is doing is essentially like if somebody were to open a portal into the throne room of God. I mean, can you imagine what that would be like? Wouldn't you want to look? Wouldn't you want to go in? Wouldn't you want to approach the throne. Well, for a Jew, that's the feeling. That's kind of the the um, what what's communicated in the scriptures as the as the real gist of what we're seeing here. So now, having understood that, it's not only this cosmological picture. It's also a, a, there's another part of the meaning too, and uh, that we want to explore this this evening which is that the temple had a, a a parallel to eden to the garden of eden and we're going to see a lot of those images in the formulation of the temple now i'm going to warn you there's a ton of scripture that i've put down on this on this uh outline and i get that and it's it's you know a lot of lengthy scripture we're not going to read all of it but i do want to read some of it so that we can kind of grasp what's being said here and you can get the basic concepts that are being laid down very early because these are sprinkled throughout the old testament and even picked up on in the new testament and it, and it's it's helpful to understand how a jew is thinking of this temple and how it functions and so israel's temple was the place obviously we talked about last week where the priest experienced god's unique presence but what we need to understand is that Eden also, back in Genesis 1 and 2, Eden was the place where Adam walked and talked with God or had some sort of very close fellowship. Last week, we, I, I said that it was heaven and earth were, were overlapping. Uh, God and man enjoyed fellowship together without sin. And so what we see in the actual text of Scripture is that there is this Hebrew word that is used to give us, to give the reader 
a sound in his ears as he reads of recollection back to the Garden of Eden. And so we see this he, these Hebrew words for God's walking back and forth in the garden. In, we see it in Genesis 3, 8. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You can tell they've sinned and you can tell automatically that they, they are used to this, to God coming into the garden and, and fellowshipping on a regular basis. And they know that the presence of God is on its way. And so they seek to hide themselves from it. But this, um, this uh, Hebrew, these Hebrew words uh, used for walking back and forth also is used to describe God's presence in the tabernacle. In fact, God says this, look at Leviticus uh, 26, 12. He says, and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Um, so uh, he says that there, then, De then Deuteronomy 23, 14, because the Lord God, your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give you up to your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. So here is God having established the tabernacle. What is the purpose of the tabernacle? It's so that we said God can meet with his people. Well, as he does, he is uh, the 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 phrase that's being used there is the same as we see back in in Genesis 3 where he walks among his people he walks back and forth um and and so the tabernacle is already starting to have these connotations of being a place where not only God meets with his people but kind of like he met with Adam in the garden of Eden so we know also that God places Adam in the garden for a specific purpose. And the Bible tells us it is to work it and to keep it. And those two words again, he, the Hebrew words there, work and keep, are, are often they're translated. And you'll, you're going to find this sometimes in just, I mean, Hebrew words, they, they have a range of meaning, much like English words. You, if you go to a, a thesaurus, you can find a, a, a number of synonyms that, that mean virtually the same thing and are part of the definition of a word. Well, it's a similar with Hebrew is to work and keep. They're often translated serve and guard. And some people even think that serve and guard should actually be the way it's translated in Genesis 2.15. But you see this in Genesis 2.15. It says, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it or to serve it and to guard it, um, which is essentially a, a very similar thing. And these two words, work and keep, usually translated serve and guard elsewhere in the Old Testament. And when we see these two words together in the Old Testament, they typically refer to the Israelites serving God and guarding his word. And specifically, the Hebrew Bible will apply those two words to the work of the priests in the temple, keeping the service or charge of the tabernacle. So 
the, the responsibility of the priests, even in the words that the Hebrews are using to describe the work of the priests, are the same words that are being used in the beginning of the Bible to describe Adam's work in the garden. So here you have these priests who are meeting with God, communing with God in a very similar way to the way Adam would. They're meeting with God, and what is their job but to keep and guard the word, to keep and guard the temple, to serve God and serve the people there in the temple. And so it's, it's, uh, you're, you're start, you can start to see even some of the parallels in the words that are being used to describe the role and function of the priest in the temple. And so Adam had this seemingly priestly-like role of guarding the garden sanctuary as, it, as, as you may think of it. And it's reflected in the way Israel's priests, who are, are also called to do the same thing. In fact, in many cases in the, in the rest of Scripture, these, these priests are often referred to as temple gatekeepers. So we see in uh, 1 Chronicles 9.23, where, um, do I have that one down on the sheet? I thought I did. Yeah, there it is. So they and their sons, that's the priests, were in charge of the gates of the house of the Lord. That is, the house of the tent as guards. And then in 1 Chronicles 9.17-27, the gatekeepers were, and he, he calls them all by name. So you're, the, they're using similar words for these priests, calling them gatekeepers, guards. They watch over the door. They're protectors. And so that they're taking on this role as, as Israel sees it, as it's being described to them in their law, that these priests have a very similar function to what Adam has in the Garden of Eden. And so consequently, the priestly role in both the garden and later in the temple was to manage it by maintaining its order and keeping out what? Uncleanness. Um, I'm, Sean, I'm going to get to your question in just one moment. So um, you can see where these, these priests think about their job. Think about what their role is. They're over the 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 temple. And what do we know about the high priest before he goes into the, uh, into the Holy of Holies to meet with God? He has to be cleansed of sin, right? Um, no uncleanness can enter into the temple at all. And so he can't just waltz into the Holy of Holies and you know, be there before, before the Lord, his, and, and he's not to allow anyone else in no other person, but the priest is allowed, allowed in. So the priest's job on one side is to teach the people, help them to understand the law. But then on the other side is to guard and keep the temple and keep out all the unclean things. Well, what is Adam's role in, if it's not to keep out the unclean things. In fact, we see it's one of the reasons why he falls. Sean asked, uh, if Adam was guarding the garden before the fall, <laughs> what was he guarding the garden from? Um, well, we see what he was supposed to guard it from. 
which would have been the serpent in Genesis 3 coming in and talking. Um, Adam and Eve were created uh, in God's image, and God said, let them have dominion over the beasts and the birds and over every living thing, right? That is, we know that for sure. Genesis 3 is a reversal of what God's original order was in creating man. The serpent comes in craftier than the other beasts of the field, but we understand him to be a beast of the field. And what does he do but dominate Adam and Eve? And that wasn't supposed to happen. Adam, you might think of it not necessarily as perhaps someone who's trying to defeat sin or, or something of that nature, as much as it is protect it from any, uh, any evil ever creeping in. We know it's a possibility for evil to get into the garden, right? We do know that, don't we? What was the tree that he wasn't supposed to eat from? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it's out there. There's, there's, a, there's bad out there, and his responsibility is to squash it. Well, here comes the beast dominating him and tempting him to disobey God. There's evil right there. It's in the garden now. And Adam has not done his job of guarding and keeping the garden from this unclean tempter um, of the serpent. Does that make sense? Or is it clear as mud? I mean, yes. it, yeah, that does help somewhat, but it's just, I guess, so uh, the idea then is that Adam is guarding against something that at this point in time, before the fall, he doesn't understand. Uh, true, yeah. Well, he doesn't understand all. He doesn't understand all. But what he does understand is an, enough. He has enough instruction from God to do his job. But, you know, the, the problem is this is the reason why his sin is so we, – we repeat his sin so often is because – the tempter comes in and says, did God really say? And Eve, it, tell, he, it tells us in Genesis 3, when she listens to the serpent's reasoning, it sounds really good. You know, I see that this fruit is delightful to the eyes, and it's profitable to make one wise. So what they're saying is, I don't have all the tools, and I need more tools. If only I knew the difference between good and evil, then I could, I could more adequately do my job. But the problem is they're listening to the voice of the serpent over the voice of God. And God is telling them, look, don't eat from the tree. Well, all the tempter has at his, well, I guess he didn't have fingertips, but whatever. All he had at the, at the end of his forked tongue is that, that breaking that command. And so that's what he tempts them with. They had all they needed to know. All they needed to know was, I can't eat from that tree. And if you're wanting me to eat from that tree, then you are the unclean thing that needs to go out. So Adam doesn't do his job. Eve doesn't do her job of guarding and keeping. So the, my, my point is that 
what we're what you're already starting to see in the role of the priest and the significance of the temple it starts to kind of look like the similar function that adam had in the garden uh was to manage it and keep out the uncleanness now it's obvious that the writers of genesis 2 and the writers uh, the, or the writer of genesis 2 and the writers of much of the rest of the uh, old testament seem to be connecting these two roles at least in the in the words that they use they they connect these two words of the role of Israel's priest and that of uh, of Adam and so Adam then serves as this here's complicated word we don't use a lot archetypal priest uh he's a type of priest to come who served and guarded or took care of God's uh, first temple. So Adam is taking care of the, the first temple because we said last week, what is the temple? The temple is the place where God meets with man. Well, what is the garden of Eden? The place where God meets with man. So for a Jew, the temple is not just like a portal where, where that you walk through and you, you're in the throne room of God. It, it certainly has that, that connection like we saw last week, but it also has a connection of like a restoration of the garden of Eden. We're restoring the Garden of Eden here. This is the Garden of Eden. The rest of the world is the chaotic universe that Adam and Eve are meant to eventually subdue and spread the Garden of Eden. That's the original mandate. Subdue it. Here's the world. You have dominion over the beasts and over all the field and over all the grass and over every living thing that creeps. Now subdue the rest of the world. And so they're to go out spreading the dominion of God, the rule and reign of God as his vice regents. We've talked about this a lot, I think, on Sunday and on Wednesday. And so, um, so the, for the Jew, the temple, the tabernacle is starting to take on this connotation of a, a new Garden of Eden from which the Jews are to spread the rule and reign of God around the world, outside of the land, okay? So uh, Adam is kind of serving as this, you know, sort of archetypal priest. All right. So when Adam, though, what did he do? Well, he failed to guard that temple. And how did he do it? Well, by sinning and letting the foul serpent uh, defile the sanctuary. I say to defile there. Uh, oh yeah. Letting in a foul serpent to defile the sanctuary. So he let the unclean thing in as a priest, letting his guard down and letting in the unclean thing. Imagine just if you, if we were to draw the connection, imagine what would have, what we would think of a, a priest, you know, just letting anybody walk in the, in the temple. We're doing uh, tours of the, of the temple. Come take a tour of the temple, taking tickets and walking them through the Holy of Holies. Imagine what, what would happen there. So what happened to Adam? Well, he lost his priestly role, didn't he? We would expect a priest to lose their role too. Well, die is really what we would expect them to do. And what did Adam do? He was given the death penalty as well. But he loses his priestly role. And what takes over the guarding of the Garden of Eden? Well, it's a cherubim takes over the responsibility of guarding this garden temple. Look at Genesis 3.24. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And then 
Uh, you can even see some of this in, do I have Ezekiel down there? Um, yeah, Ezekiel 28, 14, and 16. Um, and we, we can talk more about Ezekiel 28 because it's kind of confusing. And most of the time we read that as Satan uh, or we have in the past. But he says, you were, anoint you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of stones of fire you walked. And then in 16, in the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst. You sinned, so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, in the midst of the stones of fire. So that he places this, this guardian cherub there in, uh, in place of Adam to, to be a guardian over this garden temple. But the guardian function of the cherubim um, probably didn't involve, you know, things like gardening, like maybe Adam was also tasked with, but uh, in keeping out the sinful and unclean, that was its job. The guardian, the cherub, uh, and the, the sword is what God tells us why, why, he, why he does it and why he removes Adam and Eve out to the east. What does he say? He says, unless they reach out their hand and take from the tree of life, and so he kicked them out and he put there as a guardian to keep out any unclean thing. And it was a mercy to Adam and Eve that he did that. But the point is the cherub, the cherubim's job is to guard and to keep out any unclean thing. And, you know, guarding this as kind of a, a sacred place um, for them to, for, for uh, basically protecting humanity from God essentially is what, is what it was protecting sinful humanity from a, a holy and wrathful God. Um, so he removes them and he protects them. But the guardian role of the, in, uh, of the cherubim has actually some images in the tabernacle and the temple. Um, we see that God commands Moses to make two statues of cherubim and stationed them on either side of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. There in Exodus 25, 18 to 20, 22, just verse 18. You shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. But then the same arrangement is there in Solomon's temple as well. Um, in 1 Kings 8, 6 to 7. Let me get down there in my passage here. Uh, then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord in its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the Ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. Lest they, I'm going to supply this, lest they reach out their hand and touch the Ark of the Covenant. And what do we find out happens there? They perish. Remember when uh, in, I think it's first Sa uh, second Samuel chapter five, maybe um, he reaches out, it's falling off the ox cart. He reaches out and touches it and dies. And so we see the protection of the Ark of the Covenant. It's very similar to the protection of the tree of life, lest you reach out your hand and touch it um, and take, take from its fruit, uh, you know, and be forever dead is essentially what, what the, the way of understanding that is. So there's, there's some parallels there too, but then here's kind of like the, the, 
sort of for me is the clincher that there's these strong parallels between the temple and the garden of Eden. If they saw this temple that's sitting on this mountain as, as kind of a renewed garden of Eden is how many botanical and Edenic images are in this temple, surround this temple and, and, and go through it. And it gives it this sort of garden like appearance. First we have, there's a lot of things in here, but I'm going to go slowly through them. There's uh, wood-carved gourds and open flowers. We see that in 1 Kings 6.18. The cedar was within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All, cedar with, uh, all was cedar, no stone was seen. Um, palm trees, we see that in verse 29. Around the walls of the house, he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. Uh, in the uh, outer rooms, and then pomegranates uh, in 720. The capitals were on two pillars and also above the rounded projection, which uh, was beside the latticework. There were 200 pomegranates in two rows all around, and so with the other capital. Uh, lily designs in 1 Kings 722, and on the tops of the pillars was lily work. Thus, the work of the pillars was finished. Um, the and then we obviously saw last week the bronze sea in the courtyard had two rows of, of gourds under its brim. We see that in verse 24 and 26. Under its brim were gourds for 10 cubits uh, compassing the sea all around. The gourds were in two rows to cast uh, uh, with it when it, when it was cast. Um, and then we see 400 pomegranates around the, around the two capital pillars in verse 42. Uh, 400 pomegranates for the two lattice works, uh, it says there. 10 lampstands that were configured like trees with blossoms in 1 Kings uh, 7.49. The lampstands of pure gold, five on the south side and five on the north before the inner sanctuary, the flowers, the lampstands, and the tongues of, of gold. And for some reason, I didn't copy down the verse that actually had that in it. But um, they, have, they have these, calif uh, uh, what is the word? Calyxes, I think is the word, that, uh, of like blossoms of flowers on the actual menorah that, that menorahs that sit in the temple. Um, so we also see some parallels in the fact that in Eden, and in the temple, there was found both gold and onyx. So we see that in Genesis 2, 12. Um, let, me, let me get to that real quick. Uh, and the gold of that, land, of that land is good. Talking about Eden, bedellum, and onyx stones are there. But then in 6, uh, 20 to 22, the inner sanctuary with 12, cu 12 cubits, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high, was overlaid with pure gold. Um, and then we, see, we actually see the onyx coming out, I think, in the next passage in the breastplate and in the jewelry that the priest wears when he walks in. So he's got these fine stones that were similar to the stones found in the Garden of Eden, or at least in the surrounding area around the Garden of Eden. Um, these stones that the priest wore on his breastplate as he walked in to the, the temple. And then you've got uh, water that issues forth around both the Garden of Eden and in Ezekiel's temple and in an end time temple. And actually, in the temple that Jesus worshiped in. And I want, I want to show you that in just a second, but he says, um, so we, we see in Genesis 2.10, let me get to it real quick. Uh, Genesis 2.10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden 
and there it divided and became four rivers. And then Ezekiel obviously takes us through 47, 1 to 12, this sort of end time image of a temple um, where water is issuing forth. John picks up that same image in Revelation 21, 1 and 2, 21, 1 and 2 where he shows um, water issuing forth. But the one that I want to draw your attention to uh, is in John 7, 37. Let's read that. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So I want you to just picture this for just a second. And a lot of people miss this in John 7, when Jesus is talking, uh, uh, when he's there in the, in the temple. If you notice in that passage, it's on the Feast of Pentecost, which is a seven-day feast. And they would live in booths, and they would, do, they would do all these kinds of journey wanderings and things like that, meant to mimic the children of Israel in the wilderness as they walked. Well, every day, in Jesus' day, every day, they would take a cup, they would walk down to the pool of Siloam, they would fill the cup with water, the priest would, fill the cup with water, and all the people of Israel are marching behind the priest as he walks up to the temple and he pours the water on the altar. And that is designed to be the water that's issuing forth from the temple to the nations, as it were. And on the seventh day, they walk down to the pool of Siloam seven times and walk up to the temple seven times and pour out the water on the altar. And John tells us Jesus waited until the last day, the great day of the feast, where they would walk seven times to this pool of water, fill up the cup and pour it on the altar. And I'm, I'm reading this into the text, but I presume that he probably waited until after that seventh cup of water was poured. That just, I don't know, that's the way the text reads to me. Um, that he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Because what does, has John been telling us since the beginning of his book? but that Jesus is the temple. We beheld his glory. He tabernacled among us. We beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So he's telling us, here's the temple of God, and here's the water being poured out. And he says, come to me, all who thirst. Come to the temple, all who thirst. So there, the, as the Jews are symbolizing, come to the temple, all who thirst, Jesus is over there in the corner going, come to me, all who thirst. Come to the real temple, all who thirst. So this idea of water issuing forth from both the temple and the Garden of Eden is the, are, are connected. And then so in um, uh, subsequent Old Testament literature, we also find that Solomon's temple and Israel's end-time temple are both connected with a garden or garden-like depictions in order to identify them with Eden. All right, I have put down here a, a passage from a book that is not in your Bible. And I, I try to make that clear on the handout, and I highlighted it in blue, and Blake is shaking his head no at me. I shouldn't have done that. Um, it's highlighted in blue. It's got an asterisk next to it. And down at the bottom of your handout, I tell you what the asterisks means. It means, I can't remember how I worded it. I'm brilliant, I'm sure. 
uh, no, I'm kidding, was indicates a reference found in the Apocrypha or other extra biblical sources cited here only to get insight from the worldview of ancient Jews. So lest you be confused, Michael is trying to give us something that's not in the Bible. That wasn't my intention or to slide that by you. It's just to see that the book of Jubilees is written in some, somewhere around 130 BC. And there they actually connect Adam with this service as a priest and connect the Garden of Eden with the first temple. And all that does, it doesn't mean that that's necessarily true. What it means is that's how the Jews are reading the Old Testament. That's how they're thinking about the Garden of Eden. And that's how they're thinking about the function of the temple. This is a new Garden of Eden. And it's, and the, the, its goal is to spread the rule and reign of God out over the entire earth as Adam's was. So Israel took its job. The priests took their job. Now they didn't do it. That's, that's the problem. They didn't do it. We find in the New Testament that they are content, Israel is content to see the temple as a marker that they are gods. Not they are little g gods. They belong to God. They are his and so they look at the temple and they say, see that temple there sitting on Mount Moriah? That indicates we are the people of God and you are not. And Jesus comes into the temple and he turns over the tables and he says, my house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. So he's telling them, you're not, you're not doing the function of the temple. Why? Because just like Adam in the Garden of Eden, it was not just to keep out the unclean things, but it was to spread the rule and reign of God so that those unclean things might not be unclean things. So that those things might also submit to the dominion of God. So the Jews, instead of turning in towards each other and just isolating themselves, should have been opened to the nations, letting them stream in and teaching them what it means to submit to God truly in heart, mind, and body, right? And the temple was that kind of Garden of Eden presence that was then supposed to spread. Obviously, that isn't, they don't do it. And so what happens then? Well, Christ comes in as the temple, and he dies, and he cleans his people as the priest and as the sacrifice. He takes over the, all the temple imagery. He takes over, and he embodies he embodies the temple itself. Tear this temple down, I'll rebuild it in three days. He embodies the priest. He embodies the sacrifice. Every, he becomes everything associated with the temple. And he consecrates his people, cleans his people. And then what happens? He gives them a gift that's very important. He gives them his own spirit. And when he gives them his own spirit, Paul tells us in the New Testament, and many New Testament authors point to this same thing, that what he did was make us a temple. We're a temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives inside us. So what happens then, what the, the meaning of all that is, that the Christians are now spiritual Levitical priests in that sense. And so 
Isaiah 66, 1 uh, promises us this. He says, And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. And then what does Peter say in 1 Peter 2, 9? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so when we come together, what, what is our job? What is our job as Christians? Well, similar to what Adam's was, similar to what the priests were charged with, we are to keep order and peace of the spiritual sanctuary. That is our bodies, our minds, our hearts. We are to keep the order and the peace of our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. How do we do that? We do that by, by learning and teaching God's word, we, by prayer. And if you read through the New Testament, you'll see how many temple references people like Paul or John use on a number of things. Um, like, for instance, the prayers of the saints being incense before the Lord. Um, the, our bodies being living sacrifices in Romans 12, 1, that the work that Paul is doing amongst the Gentiles in Romans 15, 16, being uh, a sacrifice of the Gentiles. He's presenting a sac his sacrifice of the Gentiles. His work, his spiritual work that he's doing on earth is a spiritual work of a priest who's bringing a sacrifice to God. He's laying down his entire life in obedience to God as a sacrifice. He's a priest. When we meet together as a, as a church body, what are we to do? Well, we're to guard and keep each other's hearts. We're priests to one another. We remind each other of who God is. We push each other to confess sin and to own it. We bring each other into closer fellowship with God. That's our task. That's our job. And what happens, we've been talking about for the last few weeks, when someone walks off the reservation into sin and won't come back, what are we supposed to do? Paul tells us, purge the evil person from among you, just as Israel was supposed to purge the evil person from among them in their camp. They were to kick them out. So we're to guard and keep the body of Christ together as a, as a essentially an unclean moral and spiritual unit. Um, so we're to keep out any unclean, as, as a clean moral and spiritual unit, excuse me, and we're to keep out any unclean thing, things, in other words, that won't submit their heart in repentance of sin to God. We identify them plainly as unchristian. And so this has, as we think about what our role is, I, ho I hope everybody got that. I'm going to break out a screen share for just a second. Um, what our role is as a church body, as a group of people consecrated by Christ, is to come together in unity, building one another up. And we have in our minds, or we should have in our minds, that Garden of Eden-like state, or that Garden of Eden mindset, where we have fellowship with God, we, have, we are walking in, in union with, with Christ, and we are seeking to spread his rule and his reign, his dominion over the earth. How do we do that? 
by sharing the gospel with others, by communicating the gospel and seeing them come to Christ. And as they submit to him as king, then, uh, then they, they are kind of joining that temple, as it were, or they are joining that Edenic state. Um, so the parallels transfer straight over to the church, and we're going to see uh, next week where John gets into it in Revelation as he starts kind of talking about end-time temples and all of that kind of stuff and, and drawing the connection between uh, Revelation and Ezekiel, which I think is helpful. So any questions? I know that's, I know that's kind of heady and out there, but. I just want to say that, although I make fun of you for using the Apocrypha, I think it's really helpful um, because I think with a lot of the, the imagery like this, it's so easy to be like, okay, well, I can kind of see that, but is that really what they saw? It's like, is this just what some guy later who gets paid to theologize all the time came right. up with? So I think it's helpful to, to look back and see like, oh no, this is an ancient reading. This is, you know, this isn't just something someone came up with with extra time on their hands right um yeah it, it's um when that and that's i hope you see that that's the purpose of reading the apocrypha or reading i mean any book that's really old is it tells you how people thought and what they saw and just like blake pointed out we can go through the text of the old testament and we can kind of pick out things that we think are true but did they really see that you know and and sure enough they do. They pick up on those things. Shannon, did you have a question? Yeah. Could you clarify um, Hope. what the Apocrypha is? Like, what's, what the difference between jo Josephus, you know, and his writings? Sure. Yeah. Just what it is. Yeah. So the Apocrypha is um, uh, several books of really Jewish history. Um, most of them take place in the, what we call the intertestamental period between the end of the Old Testament in Malachi and the start of the New Testament in Matthew. So there's, Malachi is somewhere in probably about 400, 450, 400 BC, somewhere around there. And Matthew is, you know, I mean, starts with the birth of Jesus. So somewhere in like, Four, six to four BC, uh, the birth of Jesus. So in between that time is almost 400 years of where, where, you know, biblical witness is completely silent. And so some of these books um, like Maccabees and the book of Jubilees and books like that come about during that time where the Jews are dealing with basically a lot of tyrants moving into their land and destroying them, just laying waste to them over and over and over and over and over again. And so um, they, they, there's a lot of things in there, like them calling out and asking, where is God? Why hasn't he sent us a prophet? Um, that kind of thing. And God tells them at the end of Malachi, the next time you're going to hear from me, you're going to, Elijah's going to come. And he's going to tell you about, you know, the Messiah that's coming. And John the Baptist shows up. So, God is, is virtually silent during those times, but there's a lot of history that takes place during those times. Maccabean revolt and a lot of other those, those things we'll get to when we get to the end of the Old Testament um, that I think is really helpful. Good question. Uh, oh, Josephus. Um, Josephus is 
uh, after New Testament period, he's somewhere, I think, 30 to 90 uh, AD, somewhere in there, maybe a little bit after 90. Um, but he, he is a historian. He tells us all about the history of um, basically the Jews during that time. He references Jesus a few times. He references uh, John the Baptist a few times. Um, but he is one of the earliest historians of Jewish history that we have. And he's the one that tells us a lot about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, what the destruction of Jerusalem was like. Um, so he was a Jewish historian that also had some uh, goings on with the Roman government. Good, good question. Any other question? <laughs> Larry's like, nope. Yeah. All right. So uh, next week we'll get more like end times temple, Ezekiel stuff, and not quite as many references, I don't think. But yeah. All right. Well, if there are no more questions, go ahead, David. Yeah, Janie had an unrelated question. Go ahead. Uh, my sister-in-law saw on the news, I think it's Fox Run, Fox um, News, that um, Israel and Iraq are talking peace. What are your thoughts? And on as far as what that means in the grand scheme of things? Yeah. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. Uh, probably going to be a little bit of an unsatisfactory answer to, to most, but nothing. Um, I don't, I don't think, um, so, um, I, we'll talk a little bit more next week <laughs> about it, okay. forgive my, my reasons, but, but I, 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 I could say, um, that Israel may make peace with other nations. Israel may build a third temple. Even I, I don't think that the Bible is really talking about that. And I don't think Ezekiel is talking about that. And I don't think Revelation is talking about that either. Um, so, uh, in fact, I know Revelation is not talking about that for sure. Um, and I think Revelation is referencing Ezekiel. John tells us there is no temple. And he uh, just comes out and says it in Revelation, even though he describes a temple. But I'm going to try to connect this whole cosmic stuff, Garden of Eden stuff, with what John ends up seeing in Revelation 21, which I think is really helpful for us to understand what the temple was and how it functions and how a Jew would have understood it. So that when they hear the word temple and when they see these descriptions of temple, they don't necessarily think of them the same way we do right now as a, as a structural building. They think about all the meaning coming packed with it. So we can talk a little bit more about that obviously next week and, and get into a lot of like end times questions and things like that, that are probably going to frustrate some people, I'm sure. Um, but uh, that such is the nature of talking about the end times events that haven't happened yet or are happening or already happened or whatever, you know, is, is you kind of get into situations where everybody is in disagreement and that's okay. We can talk about those things too. So, but to answer your question, I think it's great politically that Israel and Iraq talk peace, to be honest with you. I think that from a political perspective, that's fantastic. That's wonderful. We should champion that from a political perspective. From a religious perspective, I don't think it has any bearing on, on the New Testament or the old for that matter. All right. 
since it's Zoom, you can't stone me. So <laughs> maybe we quit while we're ahead. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go to the Lord. <laughs> let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for opportunity to just sit down and, and talk about complex topics. And, and, you know, obviously this is some of the stuff that's a little bit harder to wrap our minds around and stretches us maybe a little bit, but um, I, I pray for it's um, for understanding um, for, for all of us, myself included, as we seek to go through the Old Testament and try to wrap our minds around what is happening, what you're doing, and how you're shaping history to bring about uh, its culmination in Christ, that we may worship him and see him as truly worth all of our affection and our time, our energy, uh, our adoration, our worship. And I pray that all of this would point to that more than anything. And I pray that it would be edifying for us as a body, as we consider uh, ourselves as temples of the Holy Spirit and what that means uh, to be that. So I pray that all of those things would have their effect of maturing us, growing us into the people that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, y'all. Well, I'll see y'all.